This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, chair-elect of the Board of Directors of Dialogue. And as long as I'm mentioning that, I'm hoping that everyone on this podcast is a subscriber or will become a subscriber of Dialogue. You can do that by going to our wonderful website at dialoguejournal.com. And if you forget that, just Google Dialogue Mormon and we'll be the first one that comes up. Back to today's podcast, I'm delighted to have as my guests Dr. Robert Reese and Dr. Caitlin Ryan, co-authors of an important new booklet. And that booklet is titled Supportive Families, Healthy Children. Helping Latter-day Saint Families with Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Children. To give you just a little background on both of our guests, Bob Reese, who's one of the co-authors of the booklet, is very familiar, I think, to many of our listeners. He's a lifelong Mormon who served the church in a remarkable variety of capacities, official and otherwise. For many years, Bob was a professor at UCLA, and during part of that time, he served as a bishop of the Los Angeles First Ward, where he ministered to a number of gay and lesbian congregants. More recently, he and his wife Ruth served as service missionaries in the St. Petersburg, Russia, and Baltic States missions. Bob has taught at a number of universities, primarily focusing on the arts and humanities, and has lectured all over the globe. His list of publications would fill several pages, and he also has the distinction of having served as the second editor of Dialogue from 1971 to 76 and he's currently a member of the Board of Directors of Dialogue. His day job is teaching religion at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Dr. Caitlin Ryan is a pioneer in the field of mental health care for lesbian and gay youth. Her landmark book, Lesbian and Gay Youth Care and Counseling, was written as a follow-up to the federal government's first conference on the primary care needs of lesbian and gay youth. Caitlin was the coordinator for that conference In 1988, she was named Social Worker of the Year by the National Association of Social Workers for her leadership and contributions to social change and solutions for the AIDS epidemic. And Caitlin is the director of the Family Acceptance Project, which is really what brought her to this this brochure that we're going to be discussing today. So without further introductions, let's uh, get into it, and we appreciate both of you being here. Thank you. It's nice to Always a pleasure to be part of these kinds of uh, conversations, Morris. Thank you, Morris. It's uh, great to be here with you and Bob. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to have you. Just to kind of give you some background, and maybe I'll start with you, Bob, since you're maybe a little more familiar to a lot of our listeners. You have had a long history in working with gay and lesbian youth. And by the way, we will often use the term LGTB, which stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. However, I'm not a big fan of acronyms, so sometimes I will simply use gay or lesbian and gay as a synonym for LGTB. But I think in the context, it will be understandable to our listeners. So back to my question, Bob, how did you first get involved in that? Well, it's interesting. It's probably been nearly 40 years uh, that I I would say my active involvement with this, and it was I, I was editor of Dialogue, and I got a manuscript across my desk that was called Simply Solos. I read it and was fascinated by it. It was an anonymous submission, and I think it was the first 
piece of writing published by a gay Latter-day Saint within the Mormon community that was acknowledged as that. I didn't know who that was, but it was a very interesting piece of writing about his experience of being in a culture that was um, strange and inhospitable to him. Uh, A number of people have referred to that. Uh, I have absolutely even forgotten that I published it, and a year and a half ago, or two years ago at uh, the Sunstone Symposium, a man came up to me and said, you don't know who I am, but I'd like to introduce myself to you. And he said, uh, I'm the person who wrote Solos. And uh, he embraced me and said, I can't thank you enough for publishing that. And I think that what has happened since I published that has been wonderful, that we are now in a much more open place. But he basically, he, like a lot of people of his generation, he married, he had children, but he also still felt estranged to some extent from a community that he very much wanted to be a part of. And so that experience, as long with having a number of gay and lesbian colleagues and students at UCLA, began to challenge my own thinking and believing about this. And I realized that a number of things that I had grown up with, the stereotypes, the, uh, the animosity towards gays that were part of my family, part of my community, part of my congregation's attitude, I finally found this to be disharmonious with what I understood about the gospel. I simply couldn't make those things work. And so I began to think about it, I began to read about it. And then um, when I was bishop of the Los Angeles Singles Ward for about over five years, I had a number of primary experience with gay and lesbian Latter-day Saints who really taught me what it meant to be um, uh, in this culture and to feel so alienated from it. Uh, That was, to me, a um, tremendous blessing to have that experience. But what I... What I came to believe is that we were, we were not doing things that were helpful to these people. We were doing a lot of things that were unhelpful to them. I began then to read and write. I published, a, or I, I gave a, a major address and sacrament meeting address to the heterosexual member, members of my ward called No More Strangers and Foreigners, a, a Christian response to homosexuality. Uh, that uh, then led to a number of other presentations and publications that I've done over the years. But I've stayed very involved in trying to work for what to me is both Christian and social justice for people who fit into this category and their families. And um, so it's uh, been for me uh, an enlightening and evolving. I mean, I like to say that no one that I, certainly in my generation, suddenly appeared enlightened on this issue. We all went through an evolution. And I think we should all therefore be respectful of people who may not be where we are, where we think they should be. But I've lived long enough to see the church itself make some significant changes in this uh, arena, and uh, my hope is that there will be more. As I understand it, I remember you telling a group one time that when you were a bishop, you you had gay members of your ward who filled very important positions in in the ward. Is that correct? My philosophy was that people should uh, be at church, uh, they should not. I found that a number of people had kind of disfellowshipped themselves. They felt unwanted. They felt unwelcome uh, church. And uh, I really tried to create an atmosphere in which uh, people could uh, feel comfortable uh, being in church, being in fellowship. And so uh, I welcomed people and 
gave them callings and integrated them into the ward. And I must say that the straight members of my ward were absolutely wonderful. There was a, a very warm and welcoming spirit to all who came to the ward. Now, maybe just to broaden a little bit here, we we know that the main reason we're here today is to discuss this booklet, but you have interests that are far broader than this subject. Just give us a little bit more about perhaps your educational background and what you've been doing for a profession these many years. Uh, well, I've been involved in higher education for all of my professional career. I've taught 33 or 34 different courses across the arts and humanities curriculum. But I've always maintained a very serious interest in religion and religious studies. And uh, uh, so I'm, I consider myself a textual critic, a literary critic, and a cultural critic. So I write about Mormon culture and Mormon scripture and Mormon thought and, um, and its intersection then with the broader world. I'm a humanist. I'm an intellectual. I'm a committed Latter-day Saint. I believe that the there is a harmonious uh, conjunction with science, religion, the arts, and that God gave us a heart and a mind, and it is when the heart and the mind uh, have dialogue with themselves and with other hearts and minds that we have a greater uh, chance of finding uh, what's true and what's good and what's beautiful in the world, and that's kind of what I've dedicated my life to. You've done a number of so many publications we couldn't possibly talk about all of them, but uh, you've edited some interesting books, uh, several of which I have, and one I'll just kind of give a quick plug to is sitting on my desk right now. It's called Why I Stay, and maybe you can just describe what that book is all about. Well, I, I'm very proud of that publication. It's a collection of some of the most thoughtful expressions by uh, Latter-day Saints as to why they stay committed to the church in spite of a number of uh, cultural, uh, intellectual, spiritual challenges. And I, I think it, what I hope it demonstrates is that one can be a thinking and a believing Latter-day Saint at the same time, that one can challenge conventional thinking at the same time, be devoted, that, uh, the, that the, uh, the opportunity for us to talk to one another about our doubts as well as our beliefs is essential to the, a really vital spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And so these are, um, these are a group of Latter-day Saints whose voices, I think, are uh, very important to uh, our culture. I'm, I've begun collecting a, uh, essays toward a second volume uh, on the same subject. Great. Well, now, Caitlin, uh, most of our listeners probably don't know you as well as they, are, as they know Bob Reese, but I would be interested in hearing a little bit about your background, even before you got involved necessarily with uh, this subject matter, what what your educational background is, where you come from, that sort of thing. Thanks, Morris. I'm um, I'm from back east. I'm from, uh, I'm a New Englander. My grandparents on both sides are from Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Irish Catholic, and like many Irish Catholics, the deep tradition of social justice in the faith has had a very powerful influence on what I would choose to do in my life. I was a very shy uh, child, but I was an artist and a musician, and so that gave me a way to express myself and be in the world. Uh, I grew up uh, during the 50s and the 60s, a very incredible time of um, potential and change, and especially in the arena of social justice, 
And what kind of music did you? I mean, did you play an instrument? Well, I studied classical voice. Uh-huh. I played stringed instruments. Uh-huh. I had um, a folk group in. Um, well, I, I went to Catholic school, but it would have been the equivalent of junior high school. Sure. Um, you know, I sang in different choirs, and mm-hmm. uh, and that was a, a big part of my life. I was a, um, a professional photographer in the 1960s, and attended film school for a while, and I worked in the arts and painting and sculpture and different kinds of expression. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked uh, as a volunteer, as many young people did, in the poverty movement of the 1960s. And In fact, at one point I lived in the coal camps in West Virginia and worked as a volunteer. And I worked as a volunteer in Ireland when I was a, a younger, or rather an older um, teenager. And I saw firsthand incredible poverty, especially at that time. And and profound intergenerational needs that really weren't met. And as time went on and I found my place in the world, I, I realized that uh, I had a calling, you know, I, in, in our faith, you know, being called to do something. That I, I think it, it has similarities with, with Latter-day Saints, but I realized that there was uh, an emerging need to address the health needs of lesbian and gay people. It was something that really didn't have a a framework yet, but I saw the profound levels of discrimination and abuse that were happening back in the 1970s when I was a young adult, and I got involved at the very beginning of the health movement in the United States, Uh, did a lot of early organizing. Um, My undergraduate studies were focused on human sexuality, Mm -hmm. which I think at that time was the only program of its kind in the country and was in New York, and I decided that I would become a social worker, and I'm a graduate of Smith College School for Social Work, and uh, as a clinical social worker, I was sent to Atlanta, it's a block program, to do my clinical training, Mm. and um, that was at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and in the South, as in many parts of the United States at that time, many young people left their homes in small cities and towns to go to a large urban area where they could hope to try to integrate parts of their lives without embarrassing, humiliating, shaming their families, uh, being able still to have the love and esteem of their families because their families really didn't know who they were. Mm -hmm. And so I had, there were many challenges at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. It was a, I could spend, you know, an hour of this broadcast just talking about that. But one of the most profound ones and ones that I think marked me in many ways for what I would later do was meeting the parents of these mostly young men who came from small cities and towns across the southeast uh, and bringing them to the bedsides mm-hmm. of their dying children mm-hmm. and where those parents would learn within a few minutes that their child was gay and was dying of AIDS. Yeah. And many times they would be on a respirator, they couldn't talk, there was no possibility of reconciliation. But I saw unlike what most people saw, the impact on the whole family. I had worked with their child, who was a young adult, and knew their story, but really seeing what happened to the parents when all of this finally became real for them, and seeing the impact that it had on everyone, I knew that there had to be a better way. There had to be a different way. And for many years, I had worked with Latter-day Saints in a variety of capacities, including on education related to homosexuality and LGBT issues. I had gone over to Utah to speak 
um, at the universities and family fellowship. And early on in my work, after I moved to California, I started a project that looked at the experiences of homeless, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth in faith-based programs, because most of the homeless, a large proportion of the homeless programs are run by faith-based institutions. And so I met in that context a number of Mormon LGBT adolescents who had been thrown out of their homes, uh, who had lost their families and lost the possibility of their faith, and in their minds maybe lost their families for eternity. And I saw in their experiences a qualitatively different sense of despair than other adolescents. And, and I wanted to learn more, I wanted to understand more, and as I understood more about the faith, I I'd always knew that the family was eternal, but to really understand how all of that came together, um, it had an impact on me. And so years later, when I had an opportunity to start the Family Acceptance Project after I moved to California about 12 years ago, I, I was very interested in the effects of religion, spiritual practice, beliefs, and later after we did our big study and began to develop evidence-based family education materials and interventions and strategies, um, I knew that we needed to develop faith-based materials, and the first faith that I wanted to work with was the Mormon faith. Mm. Well, that's, that's an interesting story. I, you know, I have a personal kind of reaction to that because, you know, I grew up at a time probably similar to you and Bob, when not a lot was known when we were younger about the gay and lesbian situation. And my wife's brother came out as being gay uh, shortly after he graduated from high school. And at the time, we were back in Massachusetts, I was going to law school, and it seemed a little, it was like we weren't really surprised because he had all the characteristics that you typically would associate with a gay person. He was very sensitive. He was an excellent musician. Uh, he uh, never really had dated girls very much. But at the same time, I think it did shock his family. And it, I don't think they, they did not reject him, but at the same time, they didn't understand him. He ended up moving up to San Francisco where he contracted AIDS. And my wife went up numerous times to visit him and sit with and sat with him on his deathbed as he passed away and uh, I went up for the funeral and it was my first experience seeing a community of gay and lesbian people uh, I had known individuals before but at that funeral uh, he had joined a church that was specifically uh, targeting or, or there for gays and lesbians and I just met some wonderful people, and people that defied my stereotypes of what gays and lesbians were like. I mean, these were people that I would not have necessarily picked as being either gay or lesbian, and yet they were kind and open and warm, and it really, I think, from that point forward, my perception of this whole subject changed. I think one good thing about this revolution, if you want to call it, of, of gay and lesbian people coming out of the closet and making us aware of who they are is that we no longer can just say, oh, we don't know anybody who's gay and lesbian. We know people, and we, and we have seen them grow up as children, and we have seen them be uh, wonderful 
and contributing members of our congregations, our workplaces, and whatever. So I appreciate the story you told. One of the, uh, as you're telling that story, uh, Morris, it reminded me that 25 years or so ago when I was bishop, I was invited to come to the Seattle North State to speak to uh, the High Council and Bishop's Council and the State Presidency. And the member of the State Presidency who invited me said, we have a number of gay and lesbian Latter-day Saints within our stake, and some of those have become HIV positive. He said, we've had the experience of those people dying and their families wouldn't come to the funeral. And I found it so shocking that anything could happen to do that. But the more I learned about Caitlin's work and about the the importance of the family and, and the attitudes that family members have, I've come to see the absolute significance of the work that she's done, which scientifically demonstrates the difference between an accepting and a rejecting family. And, and hopefully, uh, that is, a lot of those people became HIV-infected because... They felt rejected. They felt that there was no place for them, and they, and that there was no. Of course, there were a lot of things we didn't know about uh, HIV/AIDS at the time. But still, I think a lot of people were, at least people I knew, who felt they 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 were really motherless children. They were churchless children. Mm-hmm. And yet, one of the things that I also found among and have consistently found is that many of these people are heartbroken that they're not welcome in the church, and they feel. I've had them say, I, I want to be there singing the songs of Zion on Sunday morning, mm-hmm. but I don't feel safe and I don't feel welcome. So I think that one of the things, and maybe the most important thing that Caitlin's research has demonstrated, is that parents do not have to sacrifice any doctrine, any devotion, any commitment to the church to accept and love their gay children. There's no, there, you know, we are uh, under sacred obligation to love our children, and in one of the the, uh, the things that I we quote in the booklet is Elder Oaks' uh, uh, statement about the obligation of parents to love their children no matter what. Uh, as he, he says uh, that um, uh, members all should understand that persons and their family members struggling with the burden of same-sex attraction are in special need of the love and encouragement that is the clear responsibility of church members who have signified by covenant their willingness to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We haven't done that very well in the church, and I think that Caitlin's work reminds us not only of how significant it is in relation to what we believe, but how essential it is in terms of our focus on the family. Now, speaking of your work, Caitlin, I I think it would be helpful if you could describe somewhat the research that you have been involved in and, and how that relates to the, the book that I mentioned uh, that, that you uh, have been so well recognized for and what research has kind of come out of that book. I'm, I'm sure you've done additional research since, since that was published. Essentially, Morris, I've been involved in the field of LGBT health and mental health for nearly 40 years, similar to Bob. Um, And I've seen the emergence and the growth of a body of knowledge, body of science, if you will, particularly related to sexual orientation over the years. And as you know, research is built cumulatively, and we we know so much more now than we did in the 60s and 70s. And yet so many of people's perceptions, as I am an educator, as well as a researcher and a clinician, I still today see so many people whose perceptions and opinions about these issues are 
are based on what might have been known in the 1950s or the 1960s or the 1970s. Our basic research, um, which I did with my colleague, Dr. Rafael Diaz, and a, and a really wonderful team, did the first comprehensive study of what happens in families when children are known to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender during adolescence. How do families, foster parents, caregivers, guardians react and respond? What kinds of behaviors do they use to respond to that adolescent? And by that I mean reactions such as telling them they love them, sitting and talking with them, to try to understand even when they feel uncomfortable, standing up for them when others mistreat them in the family, in the congregation, in schools and communities, supportive behaviors, welcoming their LGBT friends to family events and activities, and rejecting behaviors like punishing them because of their identity, trying to change their LGBT identity, telling them that God will punish them, they'll be you know, prevented from participating in God's love, um, even physically hurting them because of who they are, and certainly you know, throwing them out of the home. But we were able to, in our research, and the way that we did it, and I know our time is limited here, so I welcome people's um, reading our booklet and, and our research in more detail, we were able to show the relationship between 106 accepting and rejecting behaviors to that adolescent's LGBT identity during adolescence on their health and well-being as a young adult. And so now we've established that there's a powerful and compelling relationship between the parents' and caregivers' reactions during adolescence and what happens to them when they're a young adult. And we live in an information age where data and science and facts is really important. And of course, public policy is typically established with those kinds of facts. So this project, the Family Acceptance Project, was designed not just to do research, but to do education and professional training, to develop a whole new family-related approach to decrease risk and promote well-being of LGBT young people in the context of family, culture, and faith, and also to have an impact on public policy. When we started this project, the perception was that families were rejecting, that families would not be able to support that LGBT adolescent, and the messages then and even now are still quite negative that young people receive. In fact, the whole way the service delivery system was set up was that lesbian and gay adolescents were served either individually through a health or mental health provider or through peer support, through peer programs out in the community but not through families. Families were not engaged. Even today, providers rarely ask adolescents about their family experiences. Um, LGBT youth programs have not had any kind of a family component. And even more troubling, the perception of families today in 2012 is what it was in the 70s, that they're the adversary. And so part of what we're doing with our research is having shown a powerful relationship between how families act during adolescence and what happens in young adulthood is to create a whole new family-related approach that will enable pediatricians, nurses, social workers, school counselors, others to help families decrease these rejecting behaviors that are related to high levels of risk and increase support. And when I say that these rejecting behaviors are related to high levels of risk, I mean that common reactions that families have because what we found also across all cultural groups, 
faith groups, but especially individuals who were socially conservative or religiously conservative, was profound misinformation and disinformation. Families love their children. They want the best for them. Rejecting behaviors, as we saw in our work, came out of care and concern, trying to help their children fit in, have a good life, be accepted by others. In that regard, parents would try to change their children because that's what they were told by their families, by their culture, maybe their clergy. They would discourage um, any expression of what they would consider something that would be related to a gay identity. They would think perhaps that if they went to a school where there was a diversity club or gay-straight alliance or had a gay friend that this would be contagious and it would somehow make them gay. These are not logical reactions because we know that this is not possible. But nevertheless, when it comes to your children, of course, parents are acting out of an emotional um, feeling or a a sense that they really need to protect and take care of their children. We found that common behaviors like preventing your child from learning about their identity, from having a gay friend, uh, from participating in family events and activities because of who they were, that these reactions had the same effect as physically beating your child. In other words, they were related to a nine times greater likelihood of attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. We could show this in terms of the relationship and with these rejecting behaviors and HIV, substance abuse, depression, low self-esteem, lack of social support, even the relationship between rejection and ending up out of home, which tragically many young people from conservative backgrounds and religiously conservative families, LDS families as well, end up on the street Mm -hmm. and end up um, out of home, maybe placed in foster care. We found that in our counseling, skill building, educational work with families, they were shocked to learn that behaviors they thought were helping their children were actually putting them at terrible risk. So merely by decreasing or even stopping these more than 50 rejecting behaviors, families can change the dynamic in the home. They can give that child a sense of hope. They can help keep their family together. There's a way to support your child without accepting an identity that you believe is theologically wrong or it's immoral or it's not something you want for your child, but it all starts with loving and respecting who your child is and letting them know that and being there for them no matter what, even if they're engaged in, from your perspective as a parent, doing something that you think is wrong for them. And I want to make one more point, if I could, which is that the age of self-identifying as lesbian, gay, and bisexual has dropped dramatically since I started doing this work years ago. In the 1970s, on average, young people would identify as gay in their 20s. Um, Now we see that the average age in our research here in California is a little bit over age 13, and parents find out about a year later. And we've also seen in our research young people identifying as gay at 9 or 10 or 7 or 11 at these very early ages when there are no services for families, when there are no programs in the community, when providers are poorly informed, and tragically clergy are, are poorly informed and religious leaders. So families have few sources of information to help protect their children and strengthen their families. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute because I think that's an interesting subject. I'm sure that some conservative people would say that if 
your child is identifying as gay at, at a really early age, that the reason for that is because now being gay has become so, so accepted and that in fact uh, we're, we're almost encouraging some young people to become gay. I know that is what some people think because when we had Prop 8 here in California those kinds of arguments were being made. So address that if you will. It, 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 does, does the research today support the idea that a person can be recruited, so to speak, to be either gay or, or, or heterosexual? Well, first of all, Morris, I'm, I'm not a Latter-day Saint myself, but I can tell you from my own experience that I think that very few LDS children would choose to be gay and be alone for eternity rather than to be who God made them to be and be with their family for eternity. So I think just based on logic and faith, that just doesn't make sense at all. I can also say that having now worked in the field, I have the advantage now of being what they call a senior person. So Mm -hmm. I've been around for a long time. I've been in this work from the perspective of research, science, practice, and education. And we've built a whole body of knowledge. I know what the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences says about these issues. And believe me, there is a body of knowledge there. And we've been able to document through representative studies of the population the size of the population of adolescents who identify as lesbian, gay, and bisexual. And believe me, it's increasing in the information age with access to information. Years ago, hardly anyone would talk about homosexuality. Could you find information about it? Hardly. What you found was pejorative, was in psychiatric texts. The one novel you might find in the back of a dusty library shelf was maybe from another country and it had a tragic ending and it doesn't, didn't even use you know, language that people could understand. It was all innuendo and you know, suggestion. Society has changed dramatically. That's beyond the scope of our program. But there is no evidence at all that merely by going to school with a gay person... I mean, you talk about your wife's brother. I mean, if, if that were her brother, why didn't she become a lesbian? Because that was her brother, for example. There's absolutely no evidence at all. And there's great evidence that there is a profound diversity in human sexuality. And I want to make a point about that because I think so much in our culture there's a, a very unfortunate focus on sex above, sex uber allis, if you will. I mean, we use it to sell everything. Toothpaste, cars, you know, computers. Sex doesn't rule people's lives. It's actually a very small part of the life of a human being. And yet when we think of a gay person, we think not about their humanity or their spirituality or their romantic and emotional connections, or their family. We only think about them as a sexual being. And tragically, I think, in dealing with this phenomena today in 2012, those community leaders, and I put in that political folks, um, even some professionals, as well as many clergy, the language that they have to talk about this comes from the language of adults in the 1970s. It's all about sex. It's all about sexuality. We've known for decades that there are gay adolescents, that they're coming out at younger ages. It's been documented in a number of studies, in representative studies of the population, that size of young people has increased over time, and yet the language that we use for a 10-year-old is the language that someone might use for a 25- or a Mm 30-year-old. So talking about sex with a 10-year-old doesn't make sense. But talking about emotional connectedness, 
who they like to be with, relationships. When the issue of sexual orientation is defined, it's way more than sexual attraction. The basic definition of sexual orientation is human intimate relationships and connectedness. And I go back to another piece of important scientific information, which is that in terms of what we know about suicide prevention, one of the most important aspects of preventing suicide is connectedness. Mm -hmm. So if we begin to think about the basic things that connect us as humans, it's really that emotional sinew or the tissues that connect us around faith, around fellowship, around just being together that's so powerful. And this is equally powerful for children and adolescents. We don't have a language to talk about sexual orientation with children and adolescents, but every child who's heterosexual knows it from their earliest time. Mm -hmm. And now that gay kids have a language for that, they know it too. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's important as we think about these issues to also bring it down to real life situations and real life people. These these are these are concepts that are are interesting intellectual concepts, but when you think about people, they, they start having an immediacy that they might not otherwise have. And I had I have a, a friend actually who grew up in the ward that I'm in, and was friends with my my children and was a outstanding uh, member of our church, held leadership positions all during the young people's, in our young person's programs, Uh, went on a mission, served an honorable mission, Uh, was so good that he, after the mission, worked at the missionary training center, training other missionaries. And all this time he knew that he was gay, but he was fearful of saying anything to anyone. And and one reason that he worked at the MTC was because he, he wanted to keep, he, he still held out the hope that he could somehow pray his way out of this, that he could pray and not be gay anymore. And eventually he found that that, that it wouldn't work. And, and uh, unfortunately for him, within a, a month or two of his graduating from BYU, he was uh, expelled from the school because of a breach of the honor code. And and he's very bitter, I think, towards the church right now. Maybe not so much as he used to be. Maybe it's it's settled down a little bit. His own family and his friends were not terribly supportive. Uh, in fact, in many instances, they weren't. He, he told me a story of a friend of his who, when he said that he was gay, just put her fingers in her ears and ran away, saying, this can't be, you can't be, and all that. Those are real-life situations. And how do they affect people. You've talked about how how this rejection has an increased possibility for harmful effects, but let's be specific now. How much more in your studies regarding, for example, suicide or drug use, what are some of the figures that you, you've learned? Well, I think it depends on which study. We've done a lot of them. Yeah. We're getting ready, for example, to publish a study that shows the very harmful effect of religious condemnation mm-hmm. on the health and well-being of LGBT young people and faith-based support. And we can show that creating a welcoming space, having your parents and family work with the congregation to make that congregation welcoming has a very positive effect on your well-being, just as having your parents pressure you to pray, to change, to attend religious services, participate in religious activities to change, use doctrine to condemn who you are, this is significantly related to higher levels of risk. Mm -hmm. 
thinking about how that works on a human being, if from a very early age you know you're different, which almost all the research has shown about gay people, that on average young people become aware of their first crush at age 10, whether they're gay or straight, that you've known that since age 10, that you've heard negative messages about these issues in the community at large, from your peers at school, from your family in the, in the ward or the stake, it's acting on your sense of self. You have to split part of your identity. It's kind of like, um, I think little children are born with a bank, a, res- a reservoir of self-esteem, and one by one, um, you know, the wall that protects them against risk, all those bricks of self-esteem are slowly being removed and being eroded to the point where your life is not worth uh, very much when you feel that you, if your family really knew who you were, they would never love you. Mm -hmm. If your peers knew who you were, if others knew, you wouldn't be able to participate, as Bob talked about, uh, this young man wanting so much to be part of the church. And that's one of the things I saw, Morris, with those homeless LGBT Mormon kids. They hungered for connection to family. When they talked about their relationship with the church and church activities, there was a wistfulness, like this deep sense of longing. It was like being cast out of paradise. Mm-hmm. And and I, I say that because I really feel that we have got to create, especially for children this young, who don't have the coping skills of a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old, we have to create spaces and support around families. Accurate information is absolutely essential. If your child had a serious health problem and all the people around you gave misinformation and disinformation that put your child's life in peril, Mm -hmm. which in essence is the situation that we're in now, how responsible is that? How, um, you know, isn't there an ultimate court, you know, that will decide the fate of people who continually give misinformation and disinformation? We have accurate information. One of the things, first of all, I have deep respect for the Mormon faith. One of the things that I'm especially impressed with is the belief that science comes from God. And the Mormon scholars and leaders and so many of these people that I've met that have, you know, a deep uh, appreciation for education and health and mental health providers. And, and yet, it's a faith in which there still is, in spite of this deep appreciation for science and high levels of professional practice, uh, a lot of misinformation. Yeah. And, and, a, and a faith where the family is everything. And so if we can't help educate families, what in fact can we do? Right. Hey, uh, let me say something, Morris, Mm -hmm. uh, because it's related to that. Uh, The study that uh, Bill Bradshaw and his colleagues uh, have done of 1,600 gay and lesbian Latter-day Saints uh, identified somewhere around age 10 to 12, but let's say 12, at which they first really understood that their attraction was to the same gender. And then the first time they disclosed that, and we're looking at a group of people over a period of years, so it, it includes people who were who are older as well as people who are younger and middle class. The first time they disclosed that was at age 22, which means there's 10 years in which those people didn't feel they could tell anyone. And you think about the kind of exquisite loneliness, the existential angst, the despair, the alienation that for a decade. These people are feeling that they, they don't feel safe saying anything to anyone because they've been told that what they are is undesirable, that it is something God disapproves of, it's something that it's risky to tell anybody about, 
And so they keep all of that in, and the, this is why. I think the, one of the psychological effects of that is that, you know, as, as Caitlin just talked about, the erosion of the sense of self, and that if you are not acceptable to your family or to God or to your church community or whatever, then what are you worth? And so therefore this leads very often to a sense of, uh, of, of despair that leads to suicide or other risky and self-destructive uh, uh, behaviors. And it's, it's the, the hope of stopping that that I think Caitlin's research is to me so important. Well, and it seems to me that not only do you have that, those are the worst case scenarios, but even in the best case scenarios, we often find that these people become disaffected with either with their family or the church. And as, a, as members of the church, as we are losing some outstanding uh, young people that could greatly benefit our faith if they were able to stay engaged with it somehow. I know, Bob, you probably share this vision with me, but I would would love to see the day when we could walk into church and have gay or lesbian couples sitting in the pews and people know and understand that that's who they are and they're there worshiping with us. And you don't see that very often. Well, there are, the, on occasion you do, but not very often. The irony, Morris, is that in every congregation that I've been a part of, there are people who are cohabiting heterosexually outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. What do we do? We send the home teachers, we send the visiting teachers. If they show up at church, we rejoice. We invite them to all of the activities. We do everything we can to make them feel welcome and wanted. That's not true with gay couples. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they don't feel that it's safe for them to come by themselves, let alone bring a companion. And yet the cost to us as a culture and as a church is that some of the most talented and gifted and devoted people are not in our congregations. And I came to the conclusion, after being a bishop, that among the most devoted people are these people who have tried for years and years to try and do something to be part of our culture. And, and that, to me, was an evidence of their faith and of their desire to be a part of something that was so dear to them and yet didn't feel that they could, or if they did, very often they they found that they were rejected or they found that somebody wanted to discipline them or whatever else. So most of them do a kind of self-disfellowship or communication, and very often they go to other churches and other congregations and fill wonderful roles. They become models of Christian service and behavior in, in congregations other than the one they want to be in. Yeah. And we're the poorer for it, I think. Yeah. If I could, Morris, this yeah. is actually what led me to reach out. I had worked with Mormon um, leaders in the community for many years, including on these issues, and I put together a little advisory group some years ago to advise me on the research. And I remember the first time that all of us spoke, and that's when I first met Bob, and I'd heard about him prior to that. We talked about the research and parsed it. And no one could see any place where our research actually was in contradiction with doctrine. So I got to know Bob, and he helped create some opportunities for us to speak together. And I said to him, you know, I really wanted, I wanted to talk with some of the ecclesiastical leaders about our research. I wanted to find a way to present it in the context of the faith. And so we met with um, one of the high-level religious leaders presented the research, he went over all of it with us. And these are religious leaders from our church, just to these make that LDS clear. These are LDS religious yes. leaders, yes, because I wanted to start with the LDS church, and of course, work, working with other denominations as well. And 
he was very clear about what would be in concert with doctrine. And so then he turned and he said, well, Dr. Ryan, have you considered writing a version of this for these families? And so I said to Bob, would you write this with me? So that's really how this book came into being. We wrote it very carefully so as not to um, in any way uh, conflict with doctrine. We gave it to the church three months in advance of publication so that they had plenty of time to review it and think about it and wouldn't be caught by surprise. We wanted to put something out that speaks to this based on current and contemporary science, not based on opinion, and that helps families make some critical decisions. Because when your child is coming out at 11 or 12 or 13 or 14, and parents don't know where to turn, they don't know how to get accurate information, sometimes families can act out of anger, of disappointment and hurt, and do things that will change the future in some really tragic ways. Mm -hmm. We wanted to prevent that. We wanted them to have accurate information from when their children are really little. You know, one of the things that parents across all cultural groups said to us, including Mormon families, we need to know who our children are early on. We need to be able to create a safe space for them. We don't know whether our children will be lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender when they're born. We don't know who God will send to us, but we want to know how to help our children. And that's why we wrote this booklet. I noticed there's a little gold sticker on the cover, and I thought that that was interesting. Explain to me what that is and, and the significance of that. Sure. This All of our booklets, we now have four of them, three others in uh, that are multilingual, multicultural, and our Mormon version, which is our first faith-based version. We're working on others now for mm-hmm. families from other denominations. These are the only best practices for suicide prevention for LGBT populations from the National Best Practices Registry for Suicide Prevention. And that's run by uh, the National Suicide Prevention Resource Center and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And it's funded by the federal government. And ironically, we have the only, Bob and I have written the only faith-based best practice for suicide prevention in the entire registry. And it happens to be for Mormon families with LGBT children. Yeah, I think that's encouraging. The booklet has received some very good press. There was a wonderful article that appeared, I know at least in the Salt Lake Tribune, but I think it appeared in other papers as well that, that Bishop Fletcher wrote. Is that? Yes, it, it, it appeared, for, it was uh, published by Religion News Service, mm-hmm. and it appeared first in On Faith in the Washington Post, which is one of the leading vehicles for commentary on faith in, uh, in the nation. Mm-hmm. And just for our listeners who aren't familiar, Donald Fletcher is a bishop in the in the Bay Area and in a ward that has many gay and lesbian LDS members in his area. And so he's had to uh, become familiar and aware of these things. Plus, he's a physician by profession, so he, he has at least that background. Uh, he has a openly gay man serving his, as his executive secretary. And I just quote a couple of sentences from the article. He says, There is an urgent need to provide evidence-based guidance for LDS families with LGBT children, and also more generally for our congregations as well. Uh, these new educational materials from the Family Acceptance Project, and that's referring to this brochure, 
Our aim to help LDS families and our church family support LGBT youth and adults to reduce serious risk for suicide and HIV, to foster wellness and keep our families together. I feel strongly compelled to recommend these new materials to you. Much good will come if you take the time to carefully study these well-researched documents and consider their application in your life. And I thought that was significant because here's a man who's well-educated and has been on the ground in, in a, if you will, a battleground and seen the effects of these things. And that recommendation, I think, is strong. And I, I hope that somehow your message is able to get out to religious leaders in areas where maybe it's not as much a topic of conversation as I don't think it is in our area, for example. I think one of the things, I would just say two things. One, Latter-day Saints believe that the Lord reveals his will in lots of ways. Uh, and we also have uh, an article of faith and uh, re- relating to all that God has revealed, all of that he has now revealed, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I think some of those revelations come by scientific discovery. I think they come in, in a number of different ways. But at a time when our faith is, I think, in crisis on this issue, we have what I consider you know, important revelatory level material, that is, information which is scientifically sound and which comes basically by the grace of a, a good-hearted Catholic uh, uh, researcher who, uh, uh, who recognizes uh, they, the Latter-day Saint focus on the family and how significant families are to us. And I think it's simply a great blessing that at this time we have this kind of research, and I just feel really honored to be working with Caitlin on it. Well, I'm, I'm sure, Bob, that you bring a lot of background and, and, and uh, knowledge about it. That I mean, I think it's a, a serendipitous relationship because the two of you sort of have different strengths, but pulling it all together in this booklet, I, I think it's, it's been wonderful. You list some family behaviors that are both good and, and bad, behaviors to avoid, behaviors that help. And maybe these are somewhat intuitive, but not necessarily, I think. Why don't we go through some of those, just so that our listeners know what you're talking about. Sure, here. and before we do that, could I say, Morris, these yeah. are not behaviors that we just thought would be interesting. These are actually findings from our research. So these are empirically grounded behaviors that we identified in a large study of families that were accepting, ambivalent, and rejecting of their LGBT children, religiously diverse and then we measured each of these behaviors to show how they relate to health, mental health, and well-being. Yeah, so again, just so our listeners understand, the behaviors are, are studied in, in a very broad study of, of many different people, and, and actually many studies, it's not just one study. And what you've done is identified those who have engaged in destructive behaviors and what has happened to them earlier on, and compared them to those who seem well-adjusted today, productive members of society, are are happy with themselves and what their families were like. Is that am I stating that correctly? Or? In essence, what we did was we created measures uh, out of uh, out of these accepting and rejecting behaviors that we had identified in earlier research, and then we presented those measures to LGBT young adults. Okay. And we were able to show the relationship between those who had low, moderate, and high levels of rejecting behaviors with various kinds of 
health and mental health risks as a young adult, mm-hmm. and those who experience low, moderate, and high levels of accepting behaviors during adolescence and their health and well-being as a young adult. And the, the, the findings are really quite dramatic. Hmm. So what are some of the behaviors that we need to avoid? Well, one of the things we found that I think that startles people is that preventing your child from learning about homosexuality or gender identity, this is a very highly rejecting behavior. Preventing them from going to a support group in the community, from having support uh, from their from LGBT peers, for example. Parents might do that, might prevent them to get this information or support because they fear that it's contagious, reading about it or seeing a television show or talking to somebody who's gay might make them gay. And yet for adolescents who are really struggling to find support, it's a kind of a oxygen mask in the airplane, as it were. Mm-hmm. These behaviors of trying to prevent your child from learning about who they are, from having a gay friend, um, blocking access, it's related to very, very high levels of suicidality. If you think about suicide in general, these behaviors are related to a nine times greater likelihood of your child trying to take their own life because it compounds for them the hopelessness of their situation. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that the more of these rejecting behaviors are expressed by a family, the higher the level of risk. And you talked about real-life experiences. I think of a real-life story of an LDS adolescent who was experiencing school victimization by his peers and didn't get support from his family. And his family prevented him from learning about who he was, from having a gay friend, from, from getting support in the community, isolated him, kept him at home, and one day... He took his own life. Mm-hmm. That's a very recent story. When I heard the story from a church leader um, who recounted all of the negative behaviors the family had engaged in, it was almost as if they had gone a, done a checklist of the rejecting behaviors in our research. And to me, that was so tragic because our research had been out in the community before this tragic death had occurred. Hmm. I, yeah. think, I think one of the one of the things that I think is really remarkable about this research, uh, Morris, is that it shows that if parents can simply be a little accepting or less rejecting. For example, if a parent could say something like, I don't understand this, I don't like it, I wish it weren't the case, but I love you and I will always love you and I will be there for you. That makes a profound difference because the child hears not that they are rejected, but that the parent, like a lot of parents, may not understand everything about the choices their child makes, but if the child feels that the parent loves them in spite of whatever else, then that is often enough to keep them from the extreme kinds of risks. So just being able to uh, begin to change can have a profound effect on the child. And, and the behavior that Bob just mentioned is not just a nice way to respond in our supportive behaviors that we measured. Talking with your child, even when you're uncomfortable, That's a very important place for families to start their struggling. Letting them know that you love them. Letting them know that you'll be there for them. This really helps uh, deepen the connection. It gives that adolescent hope. And it helps them understand that even if their parents disagree, they still love them. And so many times what we've seen in our research, and we've seen it in the community all the time, Parents feel that when their child is engaged in a behavior that the parent may think is a choice, that they don't 
believe is correct or appropriate or they think it's immoral, they start withdrawing their affection and encouragement in many ways. They stop hugging them. Um, they, they stop smiling at them as much. They, they stop engaging in positive behaviors because they're afraid to do anything that's going to encourage a behavior that they think is wrong. And they're giving that child so many underlying messages that I don't love you. Mm -hmm. So assuring them that you do love them and you have con issues and concerns with this particular situation, it actually expresses the ambivalence and helps the child understand it's not everything about you that I'm upset about and I'm not going to put you out on the street and we're going to be there for you. And if someone hurts you, we're going to stand up for you. Yeah. To me, and maybe I'm just a cockeyed optimist here, but I, I would hope that, that the, the day isn't too far distant in the future when most of our parents, instead of saying once they find that their child is gay, I don't like that, but... I support you and, and love you as a child, that, that rather they would say something like, you know, when, when we had you, we, we never really considered that, that you might be gay when you were a little baby, but you are, and, and we embrace that. You are who you are, and we're here for you. Let us know how we can help you. And it seems to me that's a different attitude entirely than saying, well, gee, you know, you're something less than what we wanted you to be. Absolutely, but we're talking about families that are rejecting and that are struggling yeah. and need to find a way in. What was really important about our research is we identified accepting families from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Families that from day one told their child, I love you, we're there for you, and engaged in many of these supportive behaviors from day one, including finding positive access to information for their child, finding role models to give them a sense of the future, standing up for them if they had problems in school and others mistreated them, helping make their congregation more welcoming and open, mm -hmm. giving them ways to participate in the world in the fullness of who they are. So, yes, I think our work speaks to the whole range of families from accepting to ambivalent to rejecting. But when we talk about families that are starting out as rejecting and don't know where to go, it also offers a way in. And the mm -hmm. way in is to start where they are, which is confused, the parents are confused because they don't have accurate information, mm -hmm. unsure about what's really happening, and the most important thing they can do is to assure that child that they love them, mm -hmm. no matter what. But mm -hmm. yes, we documented, not only did we document accepting families from day one, we documented celebratory families, families who celebrated who their children are. Right. I noticed some of the things you've listed as, as harmful behaviors. Here's one... Uh, pressuring your child to be more or less masculine or feminine. The stereotypical father who tells his gay son, get out there and be a man, you know, play football or whatever, that, that's, that's a harmful thing, right? I mean, if he doesn't want to. If he wants to, fine. Well, we've documented that in a number of ways, and we found that with high levels of um, parental pressure to force that child to change their gender expression, as a young adult, they have five times higher levels of depression, about four times greater likelihood of attempted suicide and illegal drug use, and um, twice as likely to put themselves at high risk for HIV as uh, peers from families where they receive no or very little pressure to try to change their gender expression. Yeah. Another one here says, <clears throat> blaming your child when she is discriminated against or has negative experiences because of her 
LGBT identity. Uh, I mean, to put it in plain English, if you have a lesbian daughter and and she comes back and crying because someone has has said something hurtful or to her at school, you know, one reaction would be, well, gee, if you just act a little more feminine, maybe you wouldn't get this problem. But that's a harmful reaction, right? Absolutely, and I don't think parents understand at all how harmful it really is. We've shown that blaming them, and there's an old uh, term, blaming the victim. In other words, Mm -hmm. your child is being victimized twice, once by their peers who are abusive or discriminatory at school, or maybe even the teachers or the staff, um, or in the community, and then coming home and having the parent reinforce that um, discrimination, that rejection in several ways. We've shown that that is a very high-risk behavior. And mm-hmm. and I'm sad to say that I think it's probably fairly common among families that are struggling and think this is wrong and they think that they can fix it or maybe the child can pray it away or that um, just by pretending that it's not there, it will go away. Mm-hmm. We've also found, for example, that denial, denying who their child is and not talking about it, these are rejecting behaviors that affect that child in negative ways. Mm-hmm. In other words, if, if you are a parent of a, of a child who has identified themselves as being gay or lesbian, it's not something that you should try to sweep under the rug. You should be open about it, talk to others about it, acknowledge who they are and what they are, that sort of thing. Absolutely, and I would recommend, for example, as a number of people have done, um, we hear from people all the time, Bob and I, in, in different ways, and We'll get emails or phone calls where people will tell us, we refer to family to your booklet, or a youth will write to us and say, as a young person did who was a medical student recently, said, "Um, thank you so much for this booklet, it really helped my family, and then he made it available to others. Or adolescents who write to us and say, my parents found this and it made such a difference. Or a parent recently who had been told that her child could be fixed, who came out at 13 as gay. And it wasn't a problem, and that it was easily fixed, and she knew that wasn't accurate information. And all of the information she got for months and months was so inaccurate and so tragic, and she found the booklet and said she cried for two days because she knew it was a way for her and her husband to help support their child. And this this particular woman that uh, Gabe was talking about, I remember what she said to me as she was feeling conflicted between the things that she was getting from some therapists, some of whom were... Um, associated uh, in in a way with uh, uh, with the church uh, therapy and others, and she said, um, "I've loved my son for 13 years, and I didn't know how to turn that off." Mm-hmm. And it was to me, it was just a, a profound kind of uh, statement. And and I think that when we th- when we think about the for all of us, all of us have sensitive egos, all of us have tender feelings and identity issues, whether we're gay or straight, and if I can remember in the 60s, parents who were embarrassed to have their children, their sons come to, to church with long hair, mm-hmm. made them cut it mm-hmm. uh, because they felt that it was embarrassing to them as the, as the parent. There were some people who fought the, the war over long hair and they lost, the, or they fought the battle over long hair, they lost the war over their child's involvement in the church. So I think that there, there are just so many ways in which the gospel teaches us uh, a sense of um, following the Savior in this regard. And when we think about his life and we think about how loving and accepting he was of people across the spectrum, whether they were Pharisees or 
tax collectors or adulter- adulteresses or whatever. The Savior's love knew no bounds, and he asks us, especially in the 25th chapter of Matthew, to emulate him, to, um, to consider everyone as if they were him. And for me, as you know, when I was bishop and published his pamphlet, I said that means that, that, that the Savior asks us to put him in the, in, the, in the place of the gay or lesbian, to, to think about those people as if they were Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. And that is an ultimate challenge to all of us who, uh, uh, who consider ourselves Christian. Good point. One thing I'd like to talk about before we end is the reverse of what we've talked about so far, which is all the good that we can do uh, for our gay and lesbian youth by following the proper behaviors. And I'm wondering if if there aren't good things that can come out of this for our LDS congregations from the gay and lesbian youth that we're able to retain. And do you have any thoughts on that? Not, not being a Mormon, Caitlin, perhaps uh, <laughs> you can see a little bit from the outside better than we can from the inside. Well, I can. And, and as I said, Morris, I, um, I, I admire so much of um, Mormon doctrine and, uh, and values. And one of the basic findings of our, our research is the power of using faith to support your LGBT child. It has definite health benefits in terms of promoting well-being and reducing risk. And when Bob and I wrote our booklet, we made a point of talking about the responsibility of congregations, and it ends actually with a final word on the importance of love. And I I say that because I think, you know, Bob's um, discussion and reminder that Christ is everywhere. Our office in San Francisco is in the heart of the mission, and my colleague Rafael Diaz, who was a Jesuit and his Jesuit trained, would often talk about going out into the mission and seeing the face of Christ on the homeless people and the discarded and the marginalized, and that's really part of the body of the church, if you will. But the responsibility of the congregation is to create a space that welcomes and involves and engages everyone, and we call for in the booklet creating a welcoming environment, and we see that happening in the Bay Area congregations where there has been open dialogue between the bishopric and the members of the wards and the stakes about how to create a welcoming space. We see congregations in the Bay Area where LGBT people are coming back to the church. I was asked to speak at a fireside one night in, in a chapel, and the parents were there of a, of a transgender adult, and Uh, Because of things that had happened in the past, that transgender adult no longer felt welcome and left the church. And after I spoke, the parents went back and brought our booklet to their child, their transgender child, um, who was a a female-to-male transgender person, and that person finally came back to church and started to participate and really felt welcome and involved and engaged. And we speak in here about giving LGBT youth opportunities of leadership in the church, creating a welcoming environment where they can participate in the activities of the church. I know that Bob is going to have a number of things to say about this, and I wonder if you close, Bob, you might um, read that quote after you make, I know, your comments about what you think about creating a welcoming space. Yeah, I Two anecdotes. Uh, many, many, many years ago when I was in the... Uh, Westwood Second Ward, a young man moved into the ward. He was about 15 or 16. And for some reason, he was there by himself. And I could see that he sensed in me somebody he could be close to. And uh, we sang in the choir. He would often stand next to me. 
and uh, I was friendly and welcoming to him. But I also was aware that I was feeling kind of uncomfortable. And I feel really terrible that I wasn't more welcoming to him, that I, I wasn't more accepting of him. I, I think there were some subtle ways in which I was distancing myself from him. And to this day, I have regrets about that. Hopefully I compensated to some extent for the work that I've done. But recently I was talking to a bishop of a singles ward in California, and uh, I asked him how, what his experience was. And he said, uh, I said with, with gay and lesbian, he said, well, I'll give you an example. I had a lesbian who came to me uh, a couple of months ago and said she was really kind of intimidated by coming to me. She came to me and asked very tentatively if it was okay if she came back to church. And he said, I told her she could come back on two conditions. One, that she brought her companion, and two, that she was willing to accept a calling. Hmm. And I was very touched by such an enlightened and compassionate bishop mm -hmm. who recognized that this person wanted to be a part of this community and who was welcoming to her. I know bishops who uh, have encouraged uh, gay or lesbian members to bring their, uh, their companion and to bring their children, if they are there, to church, to be in church. So... I think there's a lot that we can do as congregations, and I say, would say to parents, go to your bishop and say, uh, our child has just told us that he's gay or lesbian. We're concerned about how this congregation is going to be accepting. I hope you, as the bishop of this ward, will set the example that you will, in your the PEC meeting and in your bishop's council, you will encourage the members of this leadership to be accepting of my child, because we're going to be there, and we want our child to feel at home there. Caitlin asked me to read this statement by uh, Elder Holland. When our actions or words discourage someone from taking full advantage of church membership, we fail them, and we fail the Lord. The church is made stronger as we include every member and strengthen one another in service and love. Well, I think that's a very strong statement to bring our session to a close. In my experience, I think most members of the church really want to understand this situation. They want to do the right thing. Sometimes we have people that say very unfortunate things, however, in church meetings. And these people perhaps haven't had the kind of training. They haven't read the brochure that you have. And I think those who listen to this podcast and perhaps do have the brochure need to be alert to, to try to talk to these people to avoid those sorts of statements being made. I can speak, I can think specifically of a couple of examples. Uh, one member of the church who made the comment regarding a, a gay, uh, gay and lesbian people in general that, well, they think they're in love. They think they're in love. But as though he, he would not acknowledge that an actual love could could occur between two uh, people of the same sex. And someone else in a meeting that I was involved in talked about down at his work where a lesbian woman somehow had managed to get herself pregnant and was going to have children as though this was a horrible thing and not recognizing that that gay people can make very fine parents. And when those things are expressed in church, then it becomes a less accepting place, I think. For and, and that has a powerful negative effect on a young person. It reinforces their worst fears that this is not a place for you. 
I don't think it's any surprise, Morris, that most gay people, when they become older, have left the religion of their childhood mm-hmm. because there hasn't been a space for them. And, and I want to make, a, I think, another point about this. One of the, I think, the most tragic situations in an information age where our capacity to learn things has exponentially, you know, exploded, um, that we still have such a dearth of information in general and impoverishment about something that can affect not only the well-being of our children, but the well-being of the whole family. You know, one of the things we did in our research was we studied families who had thrown their children out of the home as well as those whose children were removed and placed in foster care and custodial care. And we heard the the experiences of the adolescent and the family, and the parents would say things like, I put my head on the pillow at night, I don't know where my daughter is in the world, and I hope that she's okay. I wish we could have done something differently, but we didn't know what to do. We can change all of that today. We have the science, we have the knowledge, but so much of this is teaching parents to have compassion mm-hmm. for their children. And I think in a faith where compassion is at the root of the faith, um, I think it takes a special reminder that this is a way to, um, to express Christ's love at the home, which is really where it all begins. And I think you said something that's really important for everyone listening to this podcast to hear, is that all of us can be advocates and supporters of those people in our community, whether they're in the church or not, and to be willing to to speak up. Uh, During Proposition 8, I remember being in a high priest uh, quorum in which uh, the high priest group leader was asking the members of the quorum to go out and put up signs on their lawns, and then he said, he asked people to take them, he said, of course they will have them down within a day, and I said, excuse me, brother, who are they and how do you know this? And he immediately realized that what he said was inappropriate and and backed off. But I think that we can both speak out for uh, these people and we can speak out against overt kinds or even um, subtle kinds of uh, coercion or disapproval or or treatment that is is not in harmony with the the core teachings of the gospel. Yeah, it's it's a shame if we have to have an us-versus-them mentality because we are all brothers and sisters. Well... I really appreciate both of you being here today, and, and this has been wonderful. I, I want our listeners to understand that they can get this brochure, and I encourage them to get it, uh, not only for themselves, but give a copy to your bishop, give a copy to your stake president, give a copy to your young men or young women's leader, because they're the ones that will need to deal with this on the ground. You can go online and, and download the brochure, but even better is to order it, it costs, what, $5? Yes. And and that money helps to pay for the work that the Family Acceptance Project is doing and, and getting this out to everybody. Uh, my understanding is, Bob and Caitlin, that you've, you've met with a, a number of church leaders and bishoprics and kind of instructed them on this. Is that right? We have. We've done um, presentations and firesides and trainings and private conversations so and are happy to do more for people who would like to uh, uh, to have us come and talk in within the context of their stake about uh, this importance of the work and how they can be more effectively uh, nurturing uh, being stewards of these uh, these people both the the individual LGBT ch- uh, children but also their families who often need support and you can find their website if 
I'm going to have them tell you, have Caitlin tell you what it is. But if you forget, if you Google supportive family, healthy children and LDS, you will get to the place where you can order this brochure. But Caitlin, if you were going to say a, a website. Well, Morris, we're at San Francisco State University and those syllables are so sibilant that I think what I'll just say is if they Google Family Acceptance Project, okay. it'll take them to our webpage or if they use their own browser, whatever that is. We are affiliated with San Francisco State University. We are a university community project. We're research-based, evidence-based, and we're tax-deductible if they want to help support this work. We still have other materials that we want to develop for LDS families and those from other religious denominations, and we welcome uh, their comments and support. And I would say just very quickly that out of the generosity of her heart and spirit, Caitlin has devoted a, a number of resources to bringing this project to where it is without financial support from the LDS community or with very little, uh, and we would certainly welcome uh, anyone who wants to uh, help support uh, these efforts, and that could lead to additional uh, important research. So uh, we would welcome anyone you know, purchasing and distributing uh, copies of the, uh, the booklet, but also helping to support it in any way that they can. And if someone wanted to make a contribution, for example, beyond the cost of booklets, what, what organization would they uh, make that to? They just come to our webpage. Okay. We're, we're, it's a university-based webpage at San Francisco State University. We're right here in California. They can, there are donate buttons all over the webpage in the navigation bar on the left-hand side of the page. It says donate on every page, and it goes right into the university account, and it comes to us. So okay. um, we're tax-deductible. We welcome contributions of any size, and it would make an enormous difference What's been astonishing to me, Morris, how important our faith-based work is. We've hardly been able to find any financial support for it at all. Thank you, Caitlin. I do hope our listeners will take this opportunity to support you and your work. And we certainly are grateful for what you've done for the LDS community and for everyone. Our time is up. Uh, We had some specific amount of time allotted to this, so... We'll close. Uh, Before we close, uh, Bob had mentioned to me some things about Dialogue, and I thought as one of the first editors of Dialogue, we would benefit by hearing him speak just a little bit about his experience with the journal and what it means to him. I can't remember many days in my life that were more hopeful to me and more promising to me than when, as a young graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, I opened my first issue of Dialogue with the two people sitting on the cover talking to one another. I immediately felt this was something that spoke to me and that, um, that I felt that gave me great hope in the church. I, that excitement and hope has not diminished over the period of however many 40-some-odd years that I have been uh, affiliated with Dialogue, uh, beginning as a Uh, a book review editor and uh, special editions editor and then the editor uh, of uh, of the journal and contributed to it over over the years in various ways and have uh, recently been uh, very honored to accept an invitation to serve on the dialogue board. Uh, I would encourage everyone uh, to, uh, uh, to subscribe to Dialogue, to read it, to share it with other people. It has contained some of the most significant 
research and uh, spiritual expression and testimonies and poetry and art and serious Mormon thought and expression in the history of the church. It is a very important publication, and uh, I, uh, I couldn't be more positive about my uh, enthusiasm for it. Well, thank you, Bob. Dialogue has made an important contribution to Mormonism, and it certainly is deserving of our support. And thank you, Caitlin, so much for being here and enlightening us on the importance of family and congregational support for our LGBT children. I strongly urge our listeners to make this important podcast known to their friends and family, as well as ward and stake leaders who work with our youth. And with that, we'll sign off until our next Dialogue podcast. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit DialogueJournal.com. Thank you.